Hmm? You want I should spit right in your face? You want? Hmm? You want? You want? I ran out. You ran out? Oh, that's nice. You ran out. It's impossible you ran out. What'd you do? Eat the stuff. Okay, Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen. It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis aka TV's Travis. This is episode number 160 and our movie this week was 1991's Naked Lunch. And joining me to talk about it because like me he had never seen it before is Cameron from the Green Shirt Podcast. Cameron how are you? I am here with uh all rational thought exterminated. Uh, as it should be, apparently. Um, so you had never seen this movie before, but you mentioned that it was something you thought would be a good one to watch. Um, what's kind of your history or, or knowledge of the movie prior to watching it uh, for this? Yeah, I was, I was excited because I had very little knowledge. Like, I've always been aware of the film. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm mostly a David Cronenberg fan. I, I mean, he has films I absolutely adore for sure. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I knew Peter Weller and Ian Holm were in it, so that uh, always excited me. And then I think the only other thing I knew about this movie is our video store here in Portland, Oregon, Movie Madness, is kind of like a movie museum as well. They've got all these props and costumes in it. Mm -hmm. And hanging in the ceiling is what I now know is a mugwump. Yes. um, From, I'm assuming, the end of the film with the non-puppet ones, just a big figure. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that imagery was in the film, and that's about all I knew. So similar to me, uh, I am also someone who uh, very much likes Cronenberg's movies. I guess like isn't the proper term. I respect his movies. Some of them are really, really good. Some of them are like, I don't understand what's happening. Um, But weirdly, like this movie, it's like I can't stop myself watching them. Like once I get into Mm -hmm. it, I just, no matter what's going on on screen, I just kind of, I got to watch it. Um I had forgotten uh, that this was based on a novel um, by William S. Burroughs called Naked Lunch. Um, I mm. after after I started watching the movie, I remembered. Oh, that's right. This is based on a book. And then as I kind of did a little bit of reading, the book is even weirder than the movie, um, if that's possible. <laughs> and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that a little bit. But the book, uh, I guess, was written in a way where you can just read the chapters in whatever order you feel like. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it, it honestly, watching this movie made me want to pick up a copy of the book and just get through it because there's something to the weirdness of these like beat movement, drug culture. As somebody who's never been part of that, has never, I've never like taken any mind altering substances that were more powerful than uh, than a little marijuana when I was younger, and all it did was make me sleep. I was just like, well, all right, that's fun. I'm going to bed. And I fell asleep and that was it. Um, the the concept behind it and like the hallucinations and the weird mind bending stuff just fascinates me. And one of my, one of my favorite books is one called the Illuminatus trilogy, hmm. um, which uh, is a book that I have trouble recommending to people because it's like this movie. It's very odd. It's very weird. It plays with time and space and all of that. But I got so much out of it personally. That it's like I want to recommend everybody read it, but I want them to read it so they can have the experience that I did. And I know full well, because I tried this, not everybody does. 
I had a friend of mine <laughs> threaten to light that book on fire after he fed it to me once. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it is what it is. But overall, how was the, the first experience of watching this movie for you? Ah, uh, sure. Let's see. First experience. Well, I sat down and I loved the opening credits. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be the only movie where I, uh, the opening credits are my favorite scene, to give you a hint. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I, did, I just loved that aesthetic that was going on, the kind of art deco. The music was amazing. And then, like, the cast just kept going. I was like, yep, Peter Weller. Yep, mm-hmm. Ian Holm. And then, like, Julian Sands. What? Uh, I know. Uh, Who's the other person? There's another big name where I was like, oh, this, this is going to be amazing. And then, of course, Howard Shore's name popped up as the musician. Yeah. And I was like, you're in for a ride. I, I really want to try an experiment where I swap the uh, Naked Lunch and the Lord of the Rings scores <laughs> and see uh, see how that would play. I would be interested but, uh, to, to do that as well. Yeah. And so so then it opens up and I'm, I was I was really into it um, for about the first half. And then I think the second half is kind of like, yeah, where the, the drug Uh, induced fugue took over but i will say like i am so glad i I chose to watch it for this because had i not had i just sat down and watched it once i probably would have been like well that was a weird ass movie and never really revisited it but watching it a second time so i could take my notes and really kind of be like what am i going to talk to travis about with this film (laughs) uh, i think i really started getting a lot more of it and i definitely enjoyed it more on my second watch Uh, i don't know when i'll go back for a third probably not Mm -hmm. anytime soon but i I imagine if i do i might even enjoy it a little bit more it's definitely one of those films yeah i i kind i'm with you on that in that i watched it and i got done with it and i was like what just happened what what did i just sit through two hours of because i just i was having trouble processing it because there is there is no narrative flow to this movie there isn't a plot with a beginning and a middle and an end it's just this weird disjointed group of vignettes and this guy who is an exterminator but apparently is also now going to be a writer, but he's a junkie and his wife is a junkie. And um, maybe there's a secret agent in there. Yeah. There's some sort of secret giant bugs with talking buttholes and, and, <laughs> uh, and secret agent work. And then he goes to the interzone, uh, which is the international zone somewhere in Northern Africa. Like it just, it's weird. It goes a whole lot of places. Uh, the, the, he buys a typewriter at one point that ends up turning into a giant bug, I guess, to talk mm-hmm, to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, very, very strange. And then the bug turns into the typewriter, and then they turn into drugs, and then it's back to the bug. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It Like, don't bring a logical brain to this movie at all. Like, don't, don't even try it, because all that's going to happen is your brain is going to recoil in horror, first of all. Uh, and right. You're, you're well, gonna... I mean, like, like I... The quote I opened with is a quote the uh, main character says early on, exterminate all rational thought. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the director, Mr. Cronenberg, telling us to do that. And I resisted. I fought him <laughs> on that. Again, the first time I watched it, this is an interesting movie. Because, yeah, I'm, I consider myself a story nerd. So I love to break down story beats mm-hmm. and character arcs. And films like these, I I'm often feel adrift in. So, like, yeah, the first time I watched that, I was trying to fit the narrative together. And which is why I think I like the first half. The first half kind of felt like Twin Peaks, the TV show to me, where it's like, okay, it's really weird, but I can kind of follow the structure that's going yep. on. And then about the second half feels like Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me to me, where it's like, <laughs> okay, we've got elements from that previous thing, but it's everything is out the window now. And there's there's really no like, yeah, yeah characters cling to. That is a very good way to, to put it because I, I do put Cronenberg and Lynch 
not necessarily in the same setting, but sort of in the same cardinal direction. Like, sure. they they have similar sensibilities when it comes to making movies, which is they're just going to make a movie that they want to make. And mm-hmm. if you like it or not, they don't care. Because um, I just no, covered, sir. I saw Blue Velvet for the first time a couple of weeks ago for this show. I saw that, yeah. Um, and like, it was one of those where as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, Probably one of I don't. more straightforward films. Right. And, and yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't like any of the people in this movie, but I can't stop watching this movie, and I want to know what's going to happen next. And I felt that with this, too, where it's like nothing is making sense. I don't quite get it's it's. There's a lot of hallucinations and drug trips, and they're not good people. They're not likable at all. But I'm fascinated by what's happening, and like I want to, I want to know what the next weird thing that's going to unfold is. And you're right, in the second half, it, it does go kind of snake eating its own tail and it gets even more kind of enveloped in itself and it gets even weirder. But there's, there's also something to that where like, I love, I love when art will make you question things and kind of start to ponder and interpret on your own. Mm-hmm. And this definitely does that. I think both, uh, as Burroughs wrote, uh, things. And then as Cronenberg does it, there's a, there's this counterculture thing going on. Um, it gets very Kafka esque at points. Um, not just because there's giant oh, bugs, I mean, but like they straight up yeah, name drop Kafka. So that's yeah. true. They did. It's also semi autobiographical because the book is semi autobiographical, but also the way that they structured the movie was to bring in even more elements of um, Burroughs' life. William Lee is a uh, alias or a pen name that he used. I think I think if I remember right, the book Junkie, his first book, was published under that name. Uh, instead of mm-hmm. William Burroughs, it was William Lee. But even the moment in this movie where um, he shoots and kills his wife, Joan, that is based off of a real event that happened to William S. Burroughs, where he shot and killed his wife in uh, Mexico, I think it was. And they were doing, the story is that they were doing a similar thing with the William Tell game. Um, yeah, I had no idea about that and read about it later. And it it, it does kind of feel like, well... If you wanted me to do some homework before watching this movie, not you, I mean, the filmmakers, like, right. I mean, it, it feels like I would, an audience member would get a lot more out of this movie if they, A, knew that's what he was doing, that he was, like, cribbing from uh, Burroughs' own life outside of the book, mm-hmm. and B, if we knew that about him, and, and maybe maybe in the late 80s more people did. I mean, I know who Burroughs is. I've never read any of his work. I've watched a couple movies based on his work. Yeah. Uh, have you, have you, what's your experience with them? Uh, similar. I've read a couple yeah. things, but, but it's been a while and I haven't read Naked Lunch. Um, I know mm-hmm. of him much like I know of, um, a lot of that 60s counterculture, uh, Kerouac and, right. uh, Burroughs and who was Ginsburg. Who again, apparently has a surrogate in this film, both Kerouac, Kerouac and Ginsburg. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that what you just said? Yeah. They were the, the, uh, Hank and Milton or Martin. Yeah, uh, which their their whole scene in the diner was like I enjoyed that scene, and that was where you're talking about how it's kind of Twin Peaks the series. Like that felt mm-hmm. like that, where they're sitting in a diner just sure. talking, and just the the way that they spoke to each other, and sort of the the different sensibilities going on. Um, I I quite enjoyed that. It's it's a strange movie. Now I will say, Hank, by the way, um, played by Nicholas Campbell. As I'm watching the movie, I'm racking my brain, like, why does this guy look so familiar? what have I seen him in? And I can't think of it. And then I realized what it was. 
and this is going to be how my brain works. And this is also like a, a, a complete 100% only me problem. So I do a show uh, weekly called Let's Watch Highlander, where I'm going mm-hmm. episode by episode through Highlander the series. He was in a recent episode uh, of the series in season four of Highlander. He played a, a character named um, Kip O'Neill. And I just watched it probably a month ago. So his face, wow. and it was, and that was like 95. So it was only a couple years after this movie. So his, his face was so familiar, but I just could not place it. And it bothered me every time he would show up on screen. I'm like, why do I know this guy? In a movie full of Peter Weller, you mentioned Ian Holm, who uh, I adore. And he was, sure. he had, again, one of those more bizarre scenes where they're having the walk and talk. And then, oh, that the, seems amazing. Like that scene is phenomenal. But it's so trippy the first time when you realize that the 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 video and audio go out of sync, and he's no longer yeah, where he yeah speaking oh. to him telepathically. Yes, so we've been speaking telepathically this whole time. Oh yeah, I mean that's I mean that that's what I love about these types of movies um, because again, like I'm not usually one for these more kind of abstract type films. Mm-hmm. Lynch is kind of an exception where I, he pulls me in regardless. And even when I don't understand him, I still love what I'm watching. I, I feel he makes them watchable. He makes, because again, like going back, what works best about these films is watching them again, but you have to want to watch them again to be able to start really pulling stuff out. And I feel like David Lynch at least does that most of the time. Um, and I lost my train of thought, but I guess that's it. like with these types of films, even if I don't, if there's no story for me to grasp onto, there's usually these great, amazing scenes like mm-hmm. that. Um, a- again, I knew Cronenberg. Uh, I-, I figured I was going to get some great kind of like body horror types imagery and stuff, and we certainly get all that in here. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that's what you come to like Cronenberg and other movies of this type for. Mm-hmm. And I-, I certainly wasn't disappointed in that regard with this film. Not at all. Not at all. Um, and that is one of the strengths of this movie is its weird, grotesque visuals. Mm-hmm. But because it's Cronenberg, there's so much detail that goes into all of those practical effects that they used to where, yes, is it obviously a puppet? Sure. But you don't oh. care because it fits the world and the mood and the in the in the visual style of of uh, Cronenberg. And yeah. it's also what it, do, it does it not look like a real true to life mugwump. That's also true. Like I, I've only seen a couple of mugwumps, and they were all in this movie. So you know, they all look like puppets to me. Definitely photo real there. Um, but it, I love too, just like the the weird idea and the fact that again, that sort of uh, a movie like this isn't the type of movie or the type of story that I that I uh, drift to all the time because, like you, I like a, a story, I like character progression, that kind of thing. But I do enjoy almost as a like uh, narrative palate cleanser to watch something like this where it just it forces me to like start to think about things differently. Like, OK, at what points is he hallucinating versus is he versus is he not? Because he's got the uh, the typewriter and then it's the bug and he smashes that up when he picks up the pieces. They're all gooey and, and gross and look like the animal. And then when they throw them into the um, the fire, they're all normal parts again. Um, but when his friends found the bag, they were it was full of drugs. So it's like, okay, what? Who's hallucinating there? What's going on? Like, what are we trying to do? And then you know, your brain, like my brain, starts to turn and starts to try and like 
sort things out and figure out where where is the hallucination happening because it's a it's the classic uh, unreliable narrator. It's all sure. being told well, from even, William's point of view. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, moving past even the hallucinations again, kind of going back to exterminating rational thought and me resisting. So, like, first I watch it for the narrative uh, through line that failed. So the second time I watch, I'm like, okay, these are metaphors. What does mm-hmm. everything represent? And will that kind of guide me through a story? And I got closer. It still yeah. gets a little slippery at the end. Oh yeah. But yeah, I mean, most of my notes are like, okay, so this is what this means. And this is what this means. And the tricky thing. And, and I think like a good thing about this movie is that nothing has a one for one. Like everything kind of represents different things at different times. Yes. Like where do I have? So the bug dust, we start off talking about this bug dust he has. Mm-hmm. which I feel like probably represents drug use of some sort. I also kind of feel like the bug dust represents creative inspiration. Like so much in this movie is like, where does creative inspiration come from? I think yeah. I've got the quote later that his friend tells him it's time to start talking about uh, drug use. Oh, I lost it. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. I'm trying to think of the line now. So the philosophy of drug use as a released artistic endeavor. And I'm like, well, there's the theme of the movie right there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, like there's just so much about where does creative inspiration and uh, artistic integrity, I lost it already, uh, come from. And so like, yeah, there's at times it's like from sexual exploits. Sometimes it's from like meaningful relationships. Sometimes it's from drugs and all these things kind of, change what is representing the or the same thing can represent multiple things throughout this film or maybe it's different types of drugs i i don't really know you could probably tell me at the end and i nod my head and go oh okay that's yeah that's what i meant that that makes just as much sense as anything i came up with sure i mean reading stuff from burroughs or kerouac or kafka or watching movies like this or listening to music and and diving into the lyrics of somebody like maynard james keenan from tool um you get these interesting ideas like I remember kind of dissecting the lyrics of one of the songs from Tool with a friend of mine, and we're like, okay, so basically what he's saying in this song is instead of stay away from drugs, don't do them, the song is like, no, do them. Follow the spiral down. See where it takes you. See what kind of things it unlocks and all that. And both of us were like, all right, that's cool and all, but like, I got to get up and go to work tomorrow. So (laughs) I can't just sleep it off for a few days afterwards and then go back on tour. Like it's tough it's a tough balancing act and that's why but it's but it's a it's a cool philosophy to think about like it makes you sure, question I, a few things and again i haven't read burroughs but from what i've gathered from like fear and loathing um and the rum diaries i think was this other one uh oh uh, that's thompson but yeah same oh oh hunter yeah oh i'm totally good but like i i would i would put hunter s thompson in that same they're interchangeable in my mind <laughs> sure but like yeah it's, there seems to be this fascination of like i'm going to tell about my life using drugs and or like how drugs help me write and that I'm, you're going to see the 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 product of that and i'm someone who considers myself a creative and a writer and i'm like well who cares like that's <laughs> it's so navel gazy in a way like if i a writer don't really care about your creative process involving drugs like why do you think anyone else does apparently they do because obviously these are household names we are now talking about after their deaths Mm -hmm. but it does there yeah at the end even when i was kind of putting those pieces together i was like well okay (laughs) like the theme seems to be like drugs really help you write but then they really 
fuck up your life and keep you from writing. Pretty much, and it's a, yeah. It's a vicious cycle, and <laughs> that's the theme. And I'm like, all right, well, we're right, right back where we began. <laughs> we haven't we haven't made any progress, but we now know where we all stand. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it just it, it makes me it, like it 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 causes me to have to sit back and think about things like that, and and just sort of process and dissect that and. I kind of like that because at least if nothing else, it makes me ask some of those questions. Um, and it's one of, this is a movie that is difficult for me, just like that book I was mentioning. It's difficult for me to say, yeah, go out and watch Naked Lunch because <laughs> it's not an easy thing to, to watch both visually or um, narratively. But it's kind of one of those where if you can uh, endure it, if you can get through that, I think there's some cool things you can get. And like you said, going back and watching it a second time, more stuff gets revealed. You start to peel away some of those layers. Sure. Um, Let me ask you. Sure. Did you know that it was the same actress who played the two Jones? I did. Um, I, I sure did, her. and that helped oh. a whole lot the second time watching it. <laughs> yeah, I recognized I totally her that. right away. I not. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I've seen Judy Davis in, but it was... Mm-hmm. Because of the way, like, around the eyes, and they made a point of kind of focusing around that, I noticed that. But I also have a weird, weird way of recognizing actors, like, very quickly. So I also have a little bit of face blindness, and, like, a different hairdo will just throw someone's whole face off Oh, that would totally do it. Change the shape of their head completely. It does. It's surprising. Um, Uh, Yeah, and then uh, just there is a lot of things, like, uh, a lot of parallels between New York and the inner zone. I mean, the second time, it made a lot more sense when I was like, Okay, he's not actually in Africa. Inner Zone is just drug use. It's just drug addiction. It's a whole metaphor for that. Like he's in New York the whole time. Yeah, I love the line where he walks into our house and he's like, "This looks just like a great restaurant in New York," which (laughs) made me, you know, a a different film that wasn't entirely from his point of view. Would then cut to an objective view of him and some lady making out on top of a typewriter in a fancy restaurant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and th- now I do know that uh, Burroughs spent time in the international zone in, I think it was Tunisia or Morocco, okay. um, around the time that he was writing this book. So that that is meant to be that is meant to be a real place. But I think I agree with you in that it's much more a metaphor for his drug use, and he never really went anywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, he gets there by ship. His friends take a bus. Yeah, there's. You know, that he gives his friends the drugs and the immediate next line is his friends going like, OK, we are now in the interzone with Bill. Is that right? But we're leaving like <laughs> in a way for like a movie that's so kind of head scratchy. They kind of spell it out once you kind of start latching on to some of these metaphors. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, the fact that the doctor, um, Benway, just happens mm-hmm. to be there, too. And he was the doctor in New York, Roy Scheider. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, that's it. Yeah, Roy Scheider. I didn't realize he was in it, and I was so excited for him. And and then, yeah, just seeing his He's crazy in... performance in this. Well, what's amazing is how different he is from the first time you see him, and then when he pops up at the end, yeah, yeah. he's just, like, going for it. Choices were made, and Roy is just, like, hamming it up. Um, yeah, he's Roy from Jaws in the first act, and then he's Roy from, is it uh, All That Jazz he's in? Yes. In the second half. Oh, it's not. It's either cabaret or all that jazz. I think it's all that jazz. Pretty sure it's all that jazz. That seems right. I get those two films confused the way I get Hunter S. Thompson and William S. Burroughs confused. That'll happen. Uh, but yeah, it was, I was. I had the same feeling when I was watching the opening credits, seeing like Roy Scheider, Julian Sands. Wow, wow, because I knew Peter yeah. Weller, and that was it. Um, yeah. 
So even Ian Holm. Uh, Julian Sands was great in his couple of scenes. He was. Um, yeah. He, yeah. The warlock himself. Yeah. He had this weird. You know, he does get the most, the most the horrifying mo- scene. Yeah. Go oh, ahead. Oh, God. Yeah. That was. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, here's the Cronenberg moment. <laughs> right. I knew it was coming. Like, like the, uh, the giant bugs weren't enough. Um, the, the <laughs> giant bug typewriters, one eating the other one wasn't enough. No, 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 oh, no, good. we got the, uh, we got the full on Cronenberg treatment there. Um, yeah, that was, I was like, oh, okay. All right. All right. I can, I can deal with this. And then I'm like, oh, we're going to linger. We're just going to, we're going to show, we're going to stay on this shot. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, Julian Sands, he has this, Julian Sands has this way of being like, weird and eerie but you're drawn to him he has a charisma that it shouldn't like on paper shouldn't work the mm-hmm. way his character is written but for some reason you're just like this guy's amazing he's awesome but he's also really weird and I feel strange being in the same room as him um, <laughs> but that's Julian Sands it's just certain actors have that and he he does um, and perfect for this movie yeah oh absolutely nailed it for this movie I mean the Yes. Speaking of actors, uh, I got to tell you, the most mind bending thing about this movie was when it was over and I looked it up and realized that it was not Willem Dafoe's voice playing the creatures. (laughs) I thought for sure, like, because the first half, I'm like, who is that? And then it hit me. I was like, oh, it's Willem Dafoe. This is amazing. No, no, it's not. Identical voice and intonations. And he the guy that did those voices, which was. it here somewhere creature voices yeah um peter boretsky uh did all the voices he was also one of the exterminators yeah it's the co-worker on the train right the second time i watched it i was like there's that voice okay Mm -hmm. he i mean his voice was phenomenal like it's very but you're right i didn't even think about it but you're right it's very like willem dafoe has that same type of voice it's the green goblin talking to him yeah yeah i hadn't made i had not made that connection i like that quite a bit um but the like the creature voices, I liked how it was the same voice in all the creatures. It was both, but it was also confusing because later on, when he talks to one of them, he references one of the earlier creatures, and yeah, I, they don't that, all have the same motivations. Yeah, and I kept thinking it was like the same character in different forms was how right. I got it the first time around. So it yeah, took me a while. Extremely all rational thought, Travis. I know, I know. <laughs> Got to do that. So, Speaking of actors, I, I suppose we should dwell on Mr. Weller for a while. What did you think of Mr. Weller? He, so initially, I would say through the first half of my first watching of this, I was like, all right, it's Peter Weller. He's there, but he seems almost to be phoning it in. I felt like there was something missing. Mm-hmm. But as it got going, I realized, no, he's he's so, the character is so far into this spiral with what's going on with him, that his, the reactions that he would have or the lack of reactions he would have to these outlandish things happening kind of makes sense. And mm-hmm. sort of when I, when I crossed that threshold, I realized I really like Peter Weller in this, his kind mm-hmm. of monotone delivery and the, the way he has. So Peter Weller has a voice that is simultaneously like incredibly soothing to listen to and a little, just a little bit odd. Mm-hmm. So, it fit the material perfectly when he would go on these little soliloquies talking about whatever it was that he was talking about and just like his delivery, his cadence when he would talk 
just seemed to fit perfectly. So I really enjoyed him in this. Yeah, I never heard such um, just kind of compelling mumbles, right? Yes. Like, oh, so many mumbles. Like just he just mumbling mumbles. aside, but you're right. Though he just kind of lands these uh, emphasis on on interesting words. I'm kind of with you. I although I went a little the other way. I don't know if I've ever loved and hated a performance so much in my life as <laughs> as Peter Weller as Bill Lee. One, I'm a huge Peter Weller fan and just wish there was more of him out there to watch. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'll take this if, if that's all I've got. Sure. But uh, I, on one hand, like, there, he has some amazing deadpan performances, like laugh out loud moments because of his reaction. And I get that he's kind of playing stone the whole time. Yeah. But... It, it, there's something about it where, like, I was, I really loved it at first, but by the end, it just got a little bit much for me. That I was like, you know, he's our protagonist, and he has no motivations, no arc, no goals, objectives, fears. Like, there's no one here to be our audience surrogates, and and it almost feels like a, he's aggressively pushing the audience away in that regard uh, because of his lack of. Um, just kind of leading the the audience through through the strange world. Yeah, you're not wrong there, and I think that that was again in a in a different style of film or maybe a different director. You'd have an audience surrogate somewhere in there, somebody to, to try and ground you. Yep, exactly. Um, which I think is what makes Lynch for as weird as Lynch gets. His his movies tend to be more accessible because he'll put that in there. Cronenberg doesn't. Like, Did you ever see Cronenberg's film um, Spider with Rafe Fiennes? I remember that being on my radar. If I watched it, it's completely washed through me. So I don't remember a whole lot about it, but I remember <laughs> uh-huh. it being very odd and being, and, and me being confused by the end of it um, the first time mm-hmm. that I saw it. And it was the same type of thing. There is no audience surrogate for there, and it's – it's also got the unreliable narrator because it's Ray Fine's character who's the point of view for everything. And so without that Kyle McLaughlin character, without somebody to ground it and to give you kind of a, a lightning rod, you get what you're talking about. And I can completely see that. I I enjoyed Weller throughout and I kind of liked him a little bit more again once I kind of crossed that threshold, but I can see where it would it would great it gets to a point where it's like can this guy just have a like a normal human reaction to anything that happens let me know what i should be feeling in this moment (laughs) like again scene to scene every single scene i could be like masterful choices on his part Mm -hmm. but yeah by the end of the film i was like just give me something i did get because peter weller has this ability and it's funny that his he is most known for a movie where his eyes are covered for most of it Right. Because he has a very good ability to act with his face without having to say much. And obviously, we've mentioned here, he mumbles a lot in this. So you're really Mm -hmm. left kind of being like, what do you say? Hold on. Wait. Um, But that last scene where he's crossing into uh, whatever the other country was, Anexia, I think it was called. Um, And and it took me a second. Did you realize who the two uh, guards were? I, I was guessing they were the cops. They were the from, cops from earlier okay, on. Because yeah. they were saying some of the same lines. Yep. Yeah. Um, it took me a, a minute to f- catch that that first time. I'm like, oh, oh, those are the cops. Okay. Um, but he does so – there's so much realization that washes over his face in that last scene from when he decides, hey, Joan, let's do our William Tell thing. Mm-hmm. That is him realizing that that act, that incited him to become the writer that he is. And he is trying to prove to these men that he is a writer. 
mm-hmm. and just watching him kind of process that and go through it and then his reactions after the fact and the the tear that he gets and all of that where he's like this is what makes me who I am but I have mm-hmm. to go through this in order to get there uh I yeah, thought it was that's fairly because I read I read today after my second viewing that yeah that's what uh the, the real life event is what pushed him to be a writer. So that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I was reading a lot of like, to be a writer, you can't have emotional attachments, like dead end jobs kind of rob you of creativity, uh, romantic relationships, steal your bug powder, your, your inspiration. And so there seemed to be a lot of kind of that very, uh, uh misanthrope type of energy that I was reading from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there is quite a bit of that. And I think that's a big part of the 60s counterculture movement, too, had a lot of that. Mm-hmm. That beat, that beatnik movement had a lot of that feel um, to it. So from from what I know, not having gone through it. Um, sure. But, you know, I, I just think, I think Peter Weller, he was the perfect choice for this movie. I don't know that I could see anybody else pulling off what they did in this. He, well, no, he, turn, he turned down RoboCop 3 in order to be in this, by the way. Oh, which, interesting. Okay. I thought which, it was just because RoboCop 3 had a terrible script, but... Well, it did, um, and <laughs> it was bad, and, and he made the better choice, even though this movie sure. bombed. Uh, I think it only sure. made... It got a very limited release. I think its opening weekend was like four screens, and the movie, yeah. this movie made but, something like $2.5 million in the U.S., but he still... You know how much I think, it cost to make? Uh, the estimated budget's like $17, 18000000 million. Oh, okay. All right. Um, well, yeah. I mean, the creature effects were definitely expensive i thought they did a really good job with the sets on like mm-hmm. a being able to reuse and redress the sets and then just i mean it looks kind of very stagey but in a way that really works for the movie i love the art direction of the film i mean i'm a sucker for any kind of like film noir type uh, vibe but they Same. they nailed it oh i mean the absolutely. color palette they used was amazing it it looks like 1950s new york like my, yeah. my idea of 1950s new york is what i saw in this movie um, and we very rarely see outdoors. Um, yeah, there's no establishing shots, really. So, yeah, which and I when kind they, of appreciate. When it is outdoors, like the beach, it's very obviously a stage. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that then was because they, um, they shot everything in Toronto, because it's Cronenberg, so all of his movies mm-hmm. for a long time were shot in Toronto. And uh, they actually they had to shoot the beach stuff and the desert stuff in Toronto because they couldn't go to Tunisia because of the Iraq War. Mm. So... They ended up putting like seven, I want to say it was seven tons or 7,000 tons of sand on some like old bottling factory in order to make those desert shots work, (laughs) which is just crazy to me. Um, But yeah, I mean, I just, I I don't know. Can you picture anyone else as Bill Lee in this and it working? Because it's hard for me to picture someone else. Going back, the only one that I thought of, uh, going back to my... Complete confusion of Hunter S. Thompson and Willem S. Perales. I was like, <laughs> well, what about Johnny Depp? Because, again, I thought he played this character two times before. Uh, and again, I, I think, like, I'm not saying it would have been better. I think it might have worked a little bit mo- more for me if it, it would have been, been an actor kind of went that big and kind of that, again, showy to kind of help lead you by the hand through the story. Or I the idea. could see... Uh, although in 91, I think Johnny Depp would have been too young. He'd be pretty young. Um, I think it could have worked with a young actor. I mean, it felt like it should have been a young actor. Yeah. You're, 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 you know, you're someone not. who had started writing and then gave it up to pers- try to get a real job. You know, his first marriage. I think with Depp, 
it would have been a very different portrayal because he would have been they would have gone more into the manic phase and the the showy and the very loud and bombastic parts of it whereas peter weller everything was very subdued it was very very Mm -hmm. downtrodden um i actually know who jeff goldblum speaking of cronenberg uh uh, veterans You have my attention now because <laughs> I absolutely could see Goldblum doing this. I mean, The Fly is probably my favorite Cronenberg. That one, I mean, it's it's good. As and and, or you and wanna... remakes, as remakes go, The Fly is one of the better remakes because it didn't try to right. just remake right. the right. movie. It was like, nope, we're going in a totally different direction. Well, and to continue in his uh, staple, I mean, just thinking of who's worked with Cronenberg and going back to Lord of the Rings, how about Mr. Viggo Mortensen? Ooh, Mortensen. I think that would stuck a little closer to what what uh, Weller does here. I, Mortensen, I could see standing in for Weller and and that working because he's but, got that same ability to mumble mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and mutter a lot, and he doesn't have to like, but he can still get a lot across. I could see that working. I could hmm. see it working. I think I'd prefer Weller. There is, like I, he, I think you said earlier, there's just something kind of off about him that does work. Uh, and again, I, I love every scene to scene. So I think for each scene, it, it does work. It's just slightly off kilter. I think too, I think this movie works better if you think of it like little vignettes and you, th- and you mm-hmm. don't think of it as a two hour movie. Now it'd be great to have something like this on uh, when it came out on DVD where you could just flip through different chapters and treat mm-hmm. it like the book where it was just watch it in whatever order because it's certainly not going to change anything or make it less uh, uh, <laughs> less easy to follow if you did that. Um, because it's, it's funny, you keep mentioning, you know, scene to scene, and you're right. Like, scene to scene, well, Weller's just nailing it, but it's, I can, I, like I said, I can see where over time as things go, that can start to wear a little bit. But yeah, I just, this cast was just great with him. I thought Judy Davis, um, for somebody that I didn't recognize in anything, I thought initially I was not going to like her, like like her performance, Um, but I did. I thought it was really compelling for the little bit of time that she was on screen because she's not, she's not in a lot. It's, it's odd. Like she's part of the inciting uh, incident. Yeah, sure. she's the one that gets shot, jo- Joan Fra or Joan Lee, um, and not only that, but she was the one taking his roach powder. Um, which, by the way, and I'm not a drug user, but is shooting up in the boob a normal thing? Because I don't think I've ever seen that before. I feel I've seen that in other movies, but yeah, certainly no real life experience to say one way or the other. <laughs> I, I can't say, um, but. <laughs> But she's the one taking his powder and all that. But then when he gets to the inner zone, he sees her. He gets interested in her. But then when she just like, well, I'm going to, I have to go to this lady now. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And then like, I forgot about her. And he doesn't seem to care until the end. When no. suddenly she's like the climactic kind of, the, the, suddenly he has an objective. Yeah. Something motivating him. And then, yeah, again, especially not knowing that they were the same actor and then therefore supposed to kind of spiritually be the same character. Mm-hmm. Like the end, it just really confused me the first time. <laughs> it made more sense the second time. Uh, yeah, so when you saw them in the the cafe, again, I, I'm like, okay, what does everything mean? What's What are these metaphors for? Do you think that 
the frosts represented what he could have been if uh, or wanted to be with his wife had you know the tell incident not occurred or the drug use not occurred or the I mean, writing not occurred. It kind of feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like they are sort of an embodiment of what he thinks a married couple should be. And, yeah. And sort of Something what he would strive he, for. He both wants and rejects mm-hmm. and is therefore kind of self-sabotaging uh, about. Right. Because he wants what they have, but he rejects how they have it kind of thing. And sure, sort of or like what they, they had to sacrifice to yeah. get it. Or, mm-hmm. or recognizing that maybe it's unrealistic. That I don't know. I don't know. Tart. Yeah, there's a lot of questions in there that you can dive into. Um, uh, Robert Silverman, Hans. What did you think of the Hans character? Hans. Remind me who Hans is. Is he the, Hans uh, is the, the one guy that... who, with the accent that... Yeah. Selling the black meat at the beginning. Okay, yeah. I mean, he was... I Watching this movie was always fun because... Like we said, I mean, the acting is great. Like mm-hmm. every actor to like the nameless uh, Ian Holmes, like boyfriend later, man servant that's kind of following yeah. him around. Even he just has like these great little moments. And Hans, especially just uh, uh, milking the scenes he's in. And I had I, I really wanted to be on set and see like what kind of direction they get in a film like this. Because, again, they're not looking at the character as a character, how they normally would. It's really got to be like. So, Cronenberg, uh, like, what, what what do you want me to do in the scene? Yeah, like, like, make up a situation that will get me to perform in this, what you want to happen. Yeah, because it, it, it's like, again, and we keep making the, the comparisons with Lynch, but, like, it's the only other director I can think of that does stuff like what Cronenberg will do, which is just, he's going to do something. And it doesn't matter if it makes sense necessarily. He's just going to put it in there. And then mm-hmm. you get to interpret that. And it's like, I mean, I hate to say it makes an emotional sense, I think. Yes. No, that's, that's a good way to put it actually. Uh, and Hans, that character has some of that because he's, he's so over the top and he's like greasy and sweaty all of the time. And he's got this weird nervous laughter, but like, he's also <laughs> really on the ball of like knowing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he was a, an interesting character. And then again, he just sort of disappears and they mention, uh, oh yeah, he was deported. Uh, well, mm-hmm. when we find out that he wasn't deported, he's just, uh, I guess, in a warehouse subsisting a on Mugwump. Dr. Binaways. Yeah. Yeah. Mugwump, uh, what do they, how do they refer to it? Mugwump jism? Jism. It's, uh, it's the great new thing. Uh, I had yeah. that quote written down somewhere too. <laughs> uh, not a, not a phrase I thought I was going to hear oh. that. The, when I started Mug this Wump movie. Jism can't be beat. That's ah. their just slogan on the commercial. <laughs> can't Plastered across be beat. The, oh. <laughs> the cereal box. That's right. Um, but yeah, Hans, <laughs> Kiki. I know, there's which, just lines. Kiki, Sorry. Kiki yeah, was ahead. a character. I love Kiki. Did, now, he was the same one that was in the bar in New York when he met I caught the that the second time that he okay. introduces yeah, yeah. him to the first Mug Wump, yeah. All right. Because the first time through, I was like trying to I piece love, that together. I'm like, is that the same? He looked similar, but I love that scene. The uh, sexual ambivalence and he's like, sexual ambulance. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a sucker for any any script that has a character mishear dialogue in oh, the movie. Good. I'm it's me every time. There's just some great like moments like that in this movie. Uh, that mm-hmm. you know, misheard dialogue or misunderstood or just. Um, when the, when, when Hank and Martin come to him and they're sitting in his apartment in the inner zone, which at that Mm. point I was with you, I'm like, okay, no, he's definitely 
never left New York and he's in a New York apartment, mm-hmm. but I couldn't quite tell, like looking out the window, if it was supposed to be the inner zone or not, because they made it mm-hmm. really ambiguous what was outside the window. But I loved mm-hmm. how they're starting to talk about um, all this stuff and they start piecing together like, yeah, your book. And he's like, what book? I haven't written a book. <laughs> like, yeah, your book. It's going to get published soon. And it, they're, they're piecing together all of his reports into a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like that scene was, there was something compelling about that and the way he just sort of, um, and I had the line, I captured a few lines in this. And I think, was it uh, this one about the cabal? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to play that. It sounds like this. A well-orchestrated cabal could easily manage all of these simple things, children. When will you learn? Like, that's Peter. That, when we're talking about Peter Weller and how he can just mumble his way through a line, but it's it's compelling. That's it. Like, those words don't mean anything. None of that makes right. any sense whatsoever. But I'm just like, yeah, you're right, man. You're right. When He's like the learn? cool older kid in high school who gets yes. stoned and tells you stuff. And you're like, oh my God, you're so smart. <laughs> yes, that's and exactly you who back he is. You're like, that was not someone to look up to. <laughs> no. <laughs> that is the yeah, best I, description I, of his character. Oh my God. That's, <laughs> right. I love that. Uh, yeah, I, I love that scene with his friends because it was, it did feel like a moment of lucidity. Uh, mm-hmm. It like it felt like reality was starting to creep back in. It, like apparently he had blacked out writing this <laughs> award-winning novel, and um, and now reality's kind of creeping in. And then and and that's where I was like, okay, okay, I feel like I can start latching onto this story again. And then his friends leave, and you just get cut adrift once more as he yep. resumes his addiction. They almost like Hank and Martin were his were his grounding uh, because mm-hmm. they were there in. When, when things start out and he's in the diner, they're there. And then yep. he goes home and Joan gets him to try the bug powder, mm-hmm. and which leads him to having problems. When he comes home to find them in their little orgy of whatever was going on, which, again, was very, like, it's odd because they're just... The two of them are Hank and his wife are having sex on the couch while their friend is reading essentially a word salad. He's just, he's just reading words, uh, over and over. Um, and for him to just walk in. And then again, it's like, it's one of those things where the first time I'm watching it, logic brain is like, this guy should at least acknowledge that something is happening here. And instead he just walks in, looks at it like it's a normal Tuesday afternoon. And goes on mm-hmm. to the other side of the, the room. But like they were there for that and the Joan, the William Tell incident. And then things really spiraled and they weren't around. And when they show mm-hmm. back up, you're right. They, he gets that little bit of lucidity. He's he's kind of come off of whatever he's doing. And once they leave, he spirals right back down. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, and you can definitely see, kind of going back to your point, when is he sober and not. Like mm-hmm. you can definitely tell like he'll, he'll do the black powder, the black meat the aquatic Brazilian centipede. Uh, and that's when the typewriter turns into the bug and like that's yeah. and, and makes him write. And it's the typewriter telling him to write. It's the drugs telling him to write the, the words aren't coming from him. They're coming from the drugs he's taking. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can follow that. I definitely think I picked up on that longhand writing longhand is being a sober writer mm-hmm. and using a machine is using drugs to help you write. Yeah. Um, I don't, that never really paid off, but I, I, it was a light bulb moment when I figured it out. Somewhere that, in my uh, second uh, watch is when I kind of had that same, th- oh, okay. 
right. Joan Frost writes longhand until he showed up and made her use the typewriter. Um, and then we're, and so, yeah, so then his friends leave and he, he kind of seems to hit uh, rock bottom. He's got his dark night of the soul moment. If, if we're going to try to apply a script logic to this <laughs> and then Kiki shows up. And again, to your point, I, I did, I really liked Kiki cause he's, not in the movie very much at all, but he just exudes the sweetness that you do feel some pathos mm -hmm. uh, for what happens to him at the hands of Julian Sands. And, and you do feel the betrayal that you're supposed to feel, the emotional logic of the scene, at least, because you have no idea what the narrative logic is. Right. Not so, yeah, I love that he did that. And he shows up, and this is where I'm like, okay, so he fixes his typewriter. It turns into a mugwump head. We cut to like his his apartment's nice and clean. He's nice and clean. He's enjoying writing. Is this supposed to represent a new drug he's used? Because I know uh, Burroughs used a lot of different drugs. Or yes. is this is this sexual ambivalence and sexual exploration uh, substitute for a drug? And then the drugs make him betray even that he can't have. I and and maybe you don't aren't supposed to know. Maybe you don't need to know. Maybe it's better if you can can kind of wonder that. Yeah, but there's I, definitely something going on there. I was, I was that that was kind of the point where I'm like, I think I'm getting it. I think I'm getting. I don't know where's it going, Cronenberg. Have you been smoking? Give me grass? another monster to walk me through this. Yep, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean, and and that's one of those things again where it's like it's making you ask the questions. It's making you think about it and dissect it and dive into it. And I love when stuff can do that for me. I don't need it all the time. Sometimes I just want to shut my brain off, watch something that's that's silly and and. And is just like mostly logical, but I do like mm -hmm. these weird abstract things that make me question like, okay, so, so Kiki is here now. So what is, what does he represent? Why all of that? And also you're right. Kiki needed to be who he was. So that scene with him and Eve's makes a much bigger impact. It's already going to mm -hmm. make an impact no matter what, but you get yeah. a little bit more of this emotional impact because he is an innocent person. And he didn't mm -hmm. want to be there and he didn't want to go. Yeah. And then to have that happen to him was, uh, was definitely emotional, uh, emotionally impactful. Yeah. It takes so. it from a visceral disgust to an emotional disgust. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think, it, uh, I did watch, um, a short video and it was Siskel and Ebert on this movie when it came out and both of them kind of had the same sort of reaction to it, which was like. Okay, it was weird, and I'm not sure that it that I liked it, but I appreciate what they were doing. But one of the things mm -hmm. that Ebert said at the time was like all of it was there was so much that was just revolting on a visceral level with it. Um, mm. Where it he's funny. like, I, I appreciate what they did, but I can't say that it was that I liked it. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's me or just the times, but yeah, it seems like a lot of the contemporary reviews talk about how grotesque and revolting and disturbing mm -hmm. it is. And again, like I came into this being like, those are the scenes I'm I'm here for. I know I'm going to get those scenes, even if I don't understand what else is going on. Sure. I want some cool practical effects, some like disgusting body horror. Like, uh, so I don't know. Yeah, I and, think and maybe it's just, you know, 20, and, and, 30 years yeah, later, like that I mean, sort of stuff. It's definitely part of like the times and sort of what we've had over the last 30 years, right? What mm -hmm. we've seen, what we've experienced, but also expectations. You you had knowing this was Cronenberg, you had some expectation of what to what Cronenberg was going to bring to this movie and mm -hmm. bring to this experience. And so you're like you're waiting for that to happen. Um whereas I think if either you're not familiar with his work or you're only familiar with like The Fly, 
and you think, well, he's got to do something different this time around, and they don't go in that direction. Um, you know, it's very different. And, and yeah, you're right. A lot of the critics at the time, that's what they said. But it also had favorable reviews. It got, you know, six and a yeah. half, seven, seven and a half out of ten type reviews. It's uh, sits right at that 70% Rotten Tomatoes, kind of seven on the Metacritic scale. Um, and, uh, and, and I think kind of rightfully so. A lot of things that I read were um, were a lot of the same types of things where it's like, it's not for everyone and you may not enjoy it, but it's also masterfully done. And what they did to take a book like Naked Lunch and adapt it into a film by itself, because as I'm reading about, without having read the book, but as I'm reading about the book mm-hmm. of Naked Lunch, my first thought is, who would think to make a movie out of this? Like, it doesn't yeah, make sense right. to me. Like. Again, I mentioned the Illuminatus trilogy kind of towards the top of the show. It's one of my favorite books. I could never imagine trying to adapt that to anything but the novel that it is because it just, I can't wrap my head around putting that in that form. I can't imagine trying to bring that to a screen. Some and, things are so married to their medium. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like Naked Lunch should have been that. Yet, yet here I was finding myself engrossed in this movie and enthralled by it. Like, I couldn't look away. It's... That after that first viewing, I'm like, I don't know if I liked it, but I saw something. And I'm watching it a second time. I appreciated more of it. And I appreciate the filmmaking, too. You mentioned the art direction. The art direction is fantastic. It looks good. The mm-hmm. costuming is great. Granted, Peter Weller's wearing basically the same suit through most of the movie, but it just looked Various cool. levels of distress, but yeah. Yeah, it's just that cool uh, three-piece button-down. He's got the hat. He's got his little fedora hat and like all that. It just is a cool look. It really worked. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I so I purchased the because uh, this is not streaming anywhere, and I was going to rent it from the aforementioned Movie Madness, but I, I went ahead and bought the uh, Criterion Edition because it was on sale. So I was like, "Why not? Let's do it." I dove in, and uh, it's fun because in that there's a little booklet that uh, that comes with it, and it's got a few different essays on the movie. And so I, after the first time I watched, I was like, "Okay, I need to have someone kind of peel this <laughs> apart for me." So I read the first few essays in there, and it, it's funny because like even those ones, the ones they included with the movie, are like, I don't know if this movie's good. <laughs> it's not great, but it's worth writing about. <laughs> like those are the glowing reviews for this film. I kind of feel like if you are a a film buff, not necessarily a movie buff, but a film buff, somebody who enjoys mm-hmm. the craft of filmmaking and writing and all of that, this is worth. This is something that you should seek out and see. If only Certainly, once, yeah. if just for the experience, because it is an experience to watch it. Um, Absolutely. No going into it that uh, you don't, you can just put the logic brain in the other room, let it, let it hang out and take a nap um, and just take in what you're seeing on screen. And I do think also thinking of it in terms of like little vignettes, little moments and slices mm-hmm. of, of a whatever is going on in this guy's head, um, I think. Yeah, my second helps. viewing, I didn't in parts. And I think that helped too, just kind of like being able to take little 30 minute chunks and letting it digest and then mm-hmm. taking a break and returning. The, uh, the criterion DVD also has a commentary by Weller and Cronenberg. And I, I probably will dive into that. That'll Ooh. probably be my third viewing. Not I would, too far. I would watch that. I was for tempted sure. to watch it before this, but I didn't want to just come on and be like, so this is what the commentary said. Like <laughs> if people want to know they can go listen to the commentary. Yeah. Um, I also thought it was kind of cool as was a trivia piece that I found. One of the mugwumps was in, uh, you could see on Mythbusters occasionally because I guess Jamie Heineman, uh, worked on the animatronics for this. Oh, that's cool. 
And I, I don't know if you have seen recently, but I guess the mugwumps were not built to last, so they're falling apart pretty well. Oh, the one in the video store does not look great. He's seen better <laughs> days. And, you know, that's normal. I We covered uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles a few weeks back, the first uh, the first one. And those <laughs> those did. things are falling I, apart. I still need to go back and freeze frame the shot where you can see the uh, the human mouth inside oh, the Oh, yes. Mouth. The nightmare fuel. Speaking of nightmare fuel, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Body horror that Cronenberg could only dream of. I know. Oh. But, yeah, like art direction, I think the acting is really good in this um, because you're either getting people that are mumbling through their scenes like Peter Weller, but then you got Roy Scheider who's going crazy. Ian Holm is just Ian Holm. He's great in it. Like Ian Holm is so good. Everybody is. Yeah. I couldn't tell you what makes that character interesting, but like I was glued to him every scene he was in. (laughs) It's Cronenberg got people with that charisma, that thing when I'm talking about what Julian Sands has, where it's like Mm -hmm. his character shouldn't work and I shouldn't want to watch scenes with him in it, but I couldn't take my eyes off the screen with him. Holm is the same way. He's got that kind of magnetism to him. Roy Scheider has that. I've loved Roy Scheider forever. Um, Another actor. I just wish there was more, more movies with him in. I do too. I do too. I actually had an ex whose grandfather looked exactly like Roy Scheider. (laughs) However, he had such a a thick Southern drawl. I couldn't understand a damn thing that man said. (laughs) So he would he would mutter something at me, and I would just be like, mm-hmm, "Yep, thanks, no clue." We're but he looked, to yep, yep. Mm-hmm. He he, but he looked exactly like he looked like Roy Scheider. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, Nicholas Campbell and Michael uh, um, who I haven't again. Nicholas Campbell was the the episode of Highlander, but outside of that, uh, I couldn't. I can't think of anything else I've seen him in. But he, I liked him in every scene that he was in. Uh, those yeah, two. Well, I mean, again, like yeah, his friends felt like they kind of grounded him and the story. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that opening uh, diner scene with them, too, like the conversation at first, you think it's just kind of like a writery conversation about like, do you rewrite? Do you not? Are you censoring yourself? But again, like the second time watching, I was like, wait a second. So he is on drugs now. And all these like the, the typewriters telling him that uh, that homosexuality is the way to go. But if you remember, like, the scene from before, like, if he's not censoring himself, if he's just writing these things that come to him when he takes the drugs, is he actually opening up his true desires and, and his raw self? So I think that kind of throwaway scene early on really is kind of like a compass heading for the rest of the film. Yeah. Uh, and we've barely talked about the music other than mentioning Howard Shore, but Howard Shore, one of my favorite composers. I love Howard Shore's yeah. work. Um, I mean, we're talking today because we've, we were both on Cheap Seat Reviews, Lord of the Rings month. Yes, you know, yes. With, uh, much uh, well-deserved praise for Howard Shore in that. Yes, absolutely. I will listen to, I, I still listen to those scores on a regular rotation. Um, I thought the score in this was really good, and some of that freeform jazz that they did too was really discordant, mm-hmm. but also fit, weirdly. It's, yeah, it it's hard to be used say. inappropriately, but it worked here. That is a perfect way to put it used inappropriately um i I liked it a lot i thought that it just it worked um and my like at first the first scene where he's coming into the the apartment and i'm thinking what is this music what is going on here and then it kind of just kept doing it i'm like Mm -hmm. no i dig this i i like whatever they're doing for some reason this is just pleasing to me um Mm -hmm. so yeah I, i enjoyed that i i always forget for some reason i forget that howard shore and Cronenberg work together a lot. Yeah, um, same. 
I don't know. Like I because I have so I have I have Howard Shore so tied to the Lord of the Rings movies and kind of mm-hmm. what he's done since then that I forget like yeah, you forget oh yeah that his his early stuff is very different. Very like very uh odd and experimental and trying yeah. different things. Um but he's so good. I just I really really Even the, even then there's sometimes in this where I was like, oh, I can, I can hear the seeds of Mordor in here." Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean he he brought a lot of the experimental stuff to his classical theme for uh, Lord of the Rings and I think that's why it makes it one of the great pieces of music. Yeah, I think that's why like Danny Elfman works so well doing movie themes because he brings that pop music sensibility of write a write yeah. a good hook and he brings that to so like you know when you hear a Danny Elfman score because it's mm-hmm. memorable and you can you know when you hear a Howard Shore score a lot of times there's just something about the way he does does stuff. I really enjoyed that. So I like the music in this too. Honestly, I liked this movie. It weird, weirdly, <laughs> like it's a weird thing to say. And the more I think about it, it's one of those movies that the further I get away from the first time watching it, the more I enjoy the yeah. thought of like, yeah, I might go back and watch this sometime. I don't know if it's it's not going to be anytime soon. Um, partially because I have way too much going on, but also I want to give it some time to sort of marinate, and then I can come back to it with slightly fresh eyes. But mm-hmm. there's just something compelling about it. It's that it's that weird acid trip drug fueled weirdness that I have never experienced myself, but I can kind of live vicariously through this movie or through, mm-hmm. through movies and books of this type while yeah. also making yeah, someone me, who's like forcing barely me to ever even been drunk and like <laughs> stoned a handful of times. Like, yeah, me watching these movies that are like, this is what it feels like to, to have a drug fueled bender. And I'm like, okay, on one hand, great this will be my my entry into that world i guess on the other <laughs> hand like okay sure i'm gonna take your word yeah. for it because i've never done it uh, so, exactly <laughs> it's always a weird experience yeah uh i'm always sure, reminded, maybe the next time maybe i'll make a point to get high before i watch it the next there time you go. i mean i'm maybe. always reminded of uh was it lewis black in one of his stand-up routines talked about uh he had uh he had flown across the country because some people had seen his act in new york city and they were mm-hmm. writing and creating a pilot for a TV show, and they wanted him to audition for the role in the show. And he's like, as I sat on the plane, I looked back over my life, and I realized that I was happy that in my youth I had taken LSD. I mean, sure, I never enjoyed the experience of watching a chair turn into a thousand snakes, but LSD is the only drug that can prepare you for the moment where you audition to be you. And I was like, <laughs> never taken LSD, but now I kind of understand what you're talking about. Like, that's what I, description. It's a it's a very apt description. So I, I enjoy yeah. this kind of stuff. But I also again I love when when a piece of art will push something in me. And my initial reaction to parts of this movie were one of like, ugh, I don't like it or ooh, yeah, bugs especially. I'm not a big bug fan, so the fact yeah. that it's centered around cockroaches and stuff, I'm just like kind of kind of icky. But but then it it forces me to kind of expose myself to that while also sort of thinking about, well, what is it supposed to mean? What is the, what is the metaphor here in play? And so I, I very much appreciate stuff like that. So this was a good choice. Thank you. For, oh, good. Yeah. For, uh, no, selecting. again, I'm, I'm glad I watched it. Yeah. Like again, so the first time I was watching it, you know, I was, I was, I was into that whole first New York part. I was like, this is weird, but there's something going on. It's kind of got like this, uh, uh, total recall meets fear and loathing in Las Vegas meets, Joe versus the volcano, I guess, kind of melding going on. 
Um, just with like the like, I'm stuck in like this weird job and the 40s aesthetic, and yeah, and uh, okay. and then right. yeah, you keep watching and that kind of all gets thrown out the way, and and yeah, again the first time I was like, well, okay, that just made no sense, and then the second time you watch, it, you're like, oh, there might be some method to this madness. Okay, I just need to tweak my perspective, my reality. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I I, I hope, and I I. I have a little uh, movie app, a DVD app on my phone. And I was like, oh, did I log this yet? I better log that I watched it. So the second time I went in, I logged it, and I saw that I had rated it the first yeah. time I watched it. I had forgotten. <laughs> I had given it a measly four out of ten stars the first time. And I was like, well, that's not right. I liked yeah. it more than that now. <laughs> I bumped it up two stars from theirs yeah. over just uh, one extra viewing. So, yeah, definitely it deserves your uh, attention and time for sure. Absolutely. I think so. Um, I, I agree with that completely. I think I think that this is, if you are in the right mindset to watch something that is this weird and kind of goes goes in some strange directions, you're going to get something out of it. And if, if you make, now look, if you get partway into this movie and you're just like, I'm tapping out, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> I can fully understand that because. I'm not going to recommend this to my mom. No, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I mentioned it. My dad stopped by and I mentioned, yeah, I'm watching Naked Lunch. He's like, I vaguely remember what that one is. I'm like, well, it's Cronenberg, so it's weird. He goes, yeah, and just kind of that was the end of the conversation. So I think he may have he may have tapped out of Cronenberg after The Fly. I think he liked The Fly. Oh. I remember I remember we had it on uh, Betamax because that's what we had was Beta. Wow. My dad had uh, the amazing ability to back the wrong horse in a two-horse race every time. Like beta VHS, he went beta. Blu-ray HD mm -hmm. DVD, he went HD DVD. You know, every say, every yeah. single time. Um, but but yeah, there I there's definitely people I know that would not I would never suggest this to, but man, I know a lot of people that would get some very interesting stuff out of this movie. I think it's it's a, it's a very interesting choice. It's an interesting movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're into filmmaking, into counterculture, even mm -hmm. maybe even just kind of into like weird practical effects type stuff. I know sure. I have some friends who, who like it enough and that's probably their thing they're coming to it for. Absolutely. I'm with you on that. Uh, wonderful, wonderful choice. Now you have a show. It's called the Green Shirts Podcast. Green Shirt, a newbie's trek through the next generation is our show. I, I am the titular green shirt, having never watched the next generation growing up, despite being a self-proclaimed nerd. So I am uh, rectifying that by way of podcasts. We're watching it with my slightly more knowledgeable friends. We're going episode by episode. We're halfway through season five. It's getting really good. The show Excellent. and our podcast, hopefully. And uh, yeah, you should check it out. I've, I've heard from people. I mean, what we go for is that like we try to straddle both like the nerdy trekky uh, aspect while also being accessible to just uh, random people who maybe watched the episode a while ago and sure. just having a fun time with uh, jokes and stuff. So hopefully I mean, it's the cool all. Yeah. The cool thing about Star Trek is that it's pretty rare to find somebody who hasn't at least heard of Star Trek and know a little bit about it. Even if right. they never I watched mean, it, you at least kind of know what Star Trek is. You know, the Vulcan salute. Yep. Spock is like one of the most iconic TV characters of all time of any genre. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, after TNG, are you going to move on to other Trek series? Is that the plan? Well, our, our plan is, yeah, to hit up uh, DS9 next. Our producer, John T. Bolt, is a huge DS9 fan, so he'll probably kind of take the hosting, editing reins from there and uh, and introduce me to that. We're actually uh, just about to start up a side podcast, though, for Strange New Worlds. It's the new ah, Captain yes. Pike show that's premiering next month. So we're going to have a, a change up 
uh, by talking about something less than 30 years old. That's going to be interesting. And actually, I mean, already on Twitter, we're seeing a lot more uh, engagement. People are excited for the show. And cool. the idea for this show is called Open Pike Night. So we really want to hear from everyone else. It's kind of a call-in show, except you're going to send in recordings beforehand. And we play what other people think uh, about the episodes, or right now it's what they're expecting from the show. And we chat about that. It's uh, me, it's aforementioned producer John T. Bolds. And then Jesse from the Sudden But Inevitable podcast is uh, joining us on there, cool. who is a huge Trekkie, and he's excited to finally have a Star Trek show <laughs> to uh, geek out with. That is awesome. So Green Shirt Podcast, check that out. Uh, a, 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 a newbie's trek through Star Trek The Next Generation. I love that you started there, too. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I've seen the original movies. Like that—that was what I grew up on was Star Trek. Mm -hmm. So I always considered myself a Star Trek fan. And then one day I was like, I've actually seen very little Star Trek that's out there. I was having a discussion with somebody just the other day about how uh, one of the things that makes Star Trek work so much, like, because this person said, you know, my favorite Star Trek movie was made for like twenty-six million dollars, and it's just basically a bunch of people walking around San Francisco for two hours, <laughs> and. Fair. And my thing backing that up was like Star Trek works when it's just about the characters. Uh, I love like the series because of budget constraints, it's almost all on the ship or the occasional mm -hmm. away mission. And that works. That forces the writers to write characters that you actually care about. And that's one of the things I loved about Next Generation so much. Was heartedly agree the characters. Yeah, you get into it and you you feel for these characters and 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 seeing how they evolve over the series over the series. Uh, you're getting into like where they've they've had enough time to evolve. So you're seeing you can look at data from season one and data from season five and how much he has changed or Picard. Picard was one that changed a lot more than people thought. And oh yeah, I mean there's a very pinnacle moment <laughs> that, yes. that we've seen that yeah forces him to change. And other, I mean, other gradual things. There's a lot of things I didn't know about him in the beginning. I was like, oh, Picard hates children. That's weird. Oh, that's a character trait that we're going to follow and, like, evolve throughout five seasons. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Uh, really cool stuff. Well, that's awesome. Green Shirt Podcast. Check that out. Uh, and, and Cameron, thank you so much for being on this week. This was a ton of fun. Yes. Thank you for uh, twisting my arm and getting me to, <laughs> to watch this film finally. I uh, add it to my shelf. I was having the same thoughts you were leading up to it. Like, what are we going to talk about? This is either going to be the shortest episode I've ever done, or we're going to talk for three hours about who knows what and, and like, <laughs> where is it going to go? So this was perfect. This ended up going uh, super, super well. I'm, I'm super thrilled. Thank you so much. Um, so if you want to, uh, to hang out uh, as I record the show live, which I do on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time, uh, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis, and you can hang out and be in the chat room like Ace Tigress or Sovereign Bohemian. Uh, Danny Ora was in there earlier, and I love to see that. I'm always reading the chat, so whatever you're saying in there, I see it. Remember that. I see it. <laughs> All right. I see you. Um, but uh, you can do that, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis, and the show comes out on Wednesdays wherever you can get your podcasts. So uh, definitely check out uh, that. And next week um, I am, oh, what was next week's movie? I forget now because I can't remember my own name half the time. But I got a fun one. I know that. Uh, ah, next week, next week I am going to talk to my friend Tyler Cardwell. He's never seen Predator 2. He's seen Predator, but he's never seen Predator 2, which I think is an underrated Predator movie personally okay good i was gonna um not, not superior but underrated not, not superior no because the first predator which i have covered on this show i do feel is like 
it's almost a perfect action movie. Um, especially a perfect eighties action movie, but predator two mm-hmm. got a lot of hate and I don't think it deserves it. And we're going to talk about that next week. So Tyler and I are going to talk about, uh, the Stephen Hopkins directed 1990s predator two starring Danny Glover, who, I mean, that was the biggest thing, right? Arnold's not in the movie, but I'll tell you, Danny Glover is a lot better than, than people remember in that particular movie. So you know who fun. else is in that? Bill Paxton. That's right. So, you know, it's not going to be a terrible time. Precisely. I so. think it was a, a huge missed opportunity that Alien vs. Predator 2 did not feature Bill Paxton getting killed. Yeah. That trend had already started. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. Aliens um, and Predator 2. Yes. Yes. Definitely. And and I hate those Alien vs. Predator movies, so that would have made it oh, better. Oh, no. Yeah, they're terrible. But <laughs> Bill Paxton would have made them better. Absolutely. So that's what's coming up next week is Predator 2. And until then, uh, everybody, get out, enjoy your movies, or stay in and enjoy your movies however you want to. Just enjoy them. Uh, it's been a ton of fun um, talking this week with Cameron. Thank you so much. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>